The following is a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine for a Reformed awakening. To learn more, call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org. Thank you. How do I tell you about my conversion to Christ without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? The truth be told, it felt a little like both. The language normally used to describe this odd miracle just doesn't work for me. I did not read one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes examine my life against the tenets of the Bible, you know, the way one, one might hold up one car insurance policy against all others, and cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. I never felt like I made logical, clean decisions. I did have to make decisions, but they mostly made me feel somewhat crazy. Um, there was a season of my life when I was working through these questions of faith, and I felt almost like a vampire, you know, somebody who doesn't reflect back in the mirror when you look at yourself. I also didn't feel like some, you know, victim of an emotional earthquake. I, I will tell you that I've been uh, blessed to be a Christian now for 20 years, and I don't hear audible voices from God telling me things like, you know, on Wednesday you need to do this, on Thursday you need to do that. Um, I know that there are people who tell you that's how God talks to them, it's just never quite that clear. Um, and so in some ways, my Christian life just unfolded in the normal course of my life. And in the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my secular feminist worldview. Um, I think that those questions would have remained dormant if I hadn't met a most unlikely friend a Christian pastor and a neighbor who met with me week after week after week. Not one week, not two weeks, but years and years as we would pour over the matters of my heart and the matters of Scripture. Now, that Christian couple, Ken and Floyd Smith, were my neighbors. And by the time I had met Ken and Floyd Smith, I had spent one decade of my life in serially monogamous lesbian relationships and also working to advance LGBTQ rights and causes. And in so many ways, the world that we live in now with constitutional rights to gay marriage, um, with unbiblical views of identity, with identity politics really uh, informing what everything, everybody's supposed to know about everything, that's very much the world that I helped create. Um, now, everybody's story of sexual sin is different, and that's because sin makes work for us. It makes a lot of work for us, so everybody's story is different. I actually did not see myself as a lesbian until long after the time that other people did. In my 20s, I dated men, and often as I was publicly dating men, I was falling in love with women. 
And my lesbian friends just told me, well, it's just a matter of time. You're going to come out sooner or later. And then at the age of 28, I did. I met my first lesbian lover. And truly, life just came together for me and made sense. My life really went from kind of black and white to color at that time. Um, and my life as a lesbian seemed normal. Uh, I considered it an enlightened, chosen path. Lesbianism felt cleaner and more moral to me, always preferring symmetry to asymmetry. I believed that I had found my real self. And the name Jesus, which had rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayers, and then rolled off my back in college, all of a sudden made me recoil with anger. Now at this time, at the time that I started to explore the Christian faith, and I was exploring it for the sole purpose of proving it wrong, I was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. And I marveled at the fact that my students seemed to believe, my Christian students seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant needing to know little else. I truly tired of students um, who appeared to me like bad readers. And what I mean by that is that they would use the Bible somewhat as a punctuation mark or as a stop sign, you know, to stop a conversation rather than to deepen it. Marxists call this vulgar, when you use a, a glorious ancient text to simply shut down conversation. And vulgar, I believed it was. But the most frustrating thing to me about Christians was that they simply would not leave consenting adults alone. I cared about morality and justice and compassion. As a 19th century scholar, I was fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. And I always strove to stand with the disempowered. And my life at this time was happy and meaningful and full. My, my partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, our golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist church, just to name a few. It was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and good caregivers. And indeed, the LGBTQ community that I come from values hospitality and applies it with skill and sacrifice and integrity. And I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my lesbian community. Now, my exploration of the Christian faith was really for the purpose of writing a book on the religious right and on their politics of hatred against people like me. I considered you all to be chief hate mongers that comprised this assault against me. And you people simply terrified me. And 20 years ago, I faced my fear of you by starting to write a book about why the Bible and its applications were irrelevant in a secular world. Now, I'm a scholar, and I don't like straw men arguments. I've had the same stickum on my desk for decades. It says I'd, I'd rather be wrong on an important point than right on a trivial one. Uh, I still believe that. Um, 
And to write this book, I began reading the Bible. And I took note that the Bible was amazing. It was this engaging literary display of every genre and trope and type. It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, um, compelling narrative stories. But it also had a worldview that I hated. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, sin, repentance. I just thought this was absurd. And at this time, the Christian men's movement, the Promise Keepers, came to town. And truthfully, I don't remember what terrible thing happened when the Promise Keepers came to town. I don't know if my favorite parking spot was missing. You know, it was some terrible, egregious, you know, attack against me. But, um, but I was pretty offended, and I wrote an editorial in the local newspaper. Well, this New York newspaper gave me an entire page, and they titled it, Promise Keeper's Message is, a, is, a, is an Attack Against Democracy, Syracuse University Prof Declares. So, that kind of article gets a lot of feedback. And I started to receive two kinds of mail. And even though two kinds of mail seems like this different genres, it's the same. Hate mail and fan mail are the same thing. I would just keep separate boxes so I could keep it separate and keep score. And so I would get letters, and I would file it and get a letter, and I would file it. And then one letter came from Pastor Ken Smith. And to this day, and you can imagine I'm somebody who still gets a lot of uh, hate mail and fan mail, to this day, it is the kindest letter of opposition I've ever, ever received. Um, and Smith's letter was disarming. Uh, it, he was clear he didn't agree with me, but he was also compelling and engaging in some of his own questions. I could tell that he was a man who had thought about things. Um, and I also took note that he was the pastor of a church not very far from me. And at the very bottom of his letter, he invited me to come to his home for dinner. He said, I'd like you to come to my home. My wife, Floy, and I would like to hear more about what you believe. And we'd like to get to know you. And, and you know, that was very compelling to me for a couple of reasons. And one is that the gay and lesbian community is a community highly given to hospitality. This was New York in the 1990s. And the AIDS crisis had just started to ravage our world. Um, one of the things that happened is that when people started dying, this is when the community started to create a coalition. Very prior to this, we had no reason to be LGBTQ. We were separate communities with very separate ideas. But because of the AIDS crisis, it was common in my community for somebody's home to be open every night of the week, for food and for fellowship, to stand between you and a scary diagnosis, to help where help was needed. And so it struck me as amazing that somebody outside of the gay community actually invited me to dinner. Like, I didn't know anybody else hung out at houses talking about important things. So um, I, was, I was weighing this question. 
you know, my concern, I mean, on the one hand, I really love the thought of doing this because I like to talk with people who disagree with me and I enjoy learning from people who are different. But I was also very suspicious of the motives and the worldviews that Christians espoused. I mean, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches and that Christians who protested against me and all of my friends and mocked me, thought that I and everybody I loved was going to hell, was as clear as the sky is blue. And I didn't want to sit through a whole night of that. But Ken's letter did not mock. And from his letter, Ken seemed just palpably different. But my other motive was simply this. I'm a professor. I knew I didn't know enough to really understand this book. And here is this Ken Smith guy, and he had the right pedigree. And I thought to myself, if I get to know this Ken Smith guy, this, he might be my unpaid research assistant for this book. <laughs> you know, this would be a wise friendship to have. Well, something else happened. Ken and Floyd and I became friends and I was the recipient of radical, ordinary Christian hospitality. If I ate one meal at their house, I ate 500. Um, their door was open, not just to me, but to all kinds of other people. And their house was so comfortable and open and fluid and organic I kind of thought, are you sure they're not gay? I mean, this is very gay in my opinion. Everybody's coming in, they're friends, they're hugging. I mean, the big difference was all these people would come in with this thing called the Bible, and then they'd open it up and they'd talk about it. But you know, that was pretty engaging too. These people were readers and thinkers, and that was amazing. And so I am a recipient of anything that I talk about in my, in my books. I can barely give credit to what it meant that Ken and Floyd did this. And you know, I've asked them, I, I said, Ken, why did you ever write me that letter and invite me to dinner? And he said, well, you know, a, a, one of the young elders in the church put that Promise Keeper editorial on his desk and said, Ken, this woman is trouble. You know, she co-authored the domestic partnership policy at, at the university. We've got to shut her up. And Ken said, well, how about if Floyd and I invite her to dinner? <laughs> and, and you know, you know, that elder is like, whoa, man, you got to retire. You know, like this is, <laughs> you got a tiger by the tail. You don't even know it. But so all of what I'm going to say is just the, the accumulation of that kind of love and care was exactly what not only I needed, but what most people need. But my first evening at their home was really memorable. Um, they, first of all, they were very open. They talked openly about sexuality and politics. They didn't act like those conversations were polluting them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate. Uh, Ken prayed before the meal in a way that was, I'd never heard anybody pray like this. He repented of his sin in front of me. He was vulnerable. And he introduced this idea of a God that I had never heard of. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. 
And after my first meal, like my first of what, 500 to 1,000 before I ever even stepped foot through, you know, in the, in the church doors threshold, Ken did two things that were just so strikingly unusual. And there's a playbook, you all know it, for how Christians are supposed to deal with a heathen like me. I've read the playbook, you've read the playbook, and I could trust that Ken Smith had run the play, read the playbook but he completely violated the playbook. <laughs> he can, so we get to the end of the evening and my, you know, I'm kind of holding my stomach in tight because I'm ready for the double whammy, right? But he never gave it. He did not share the gospel with me that night. I mean, he took the risk that I was gonna get in my car with my gay rights bumper stickers and drive a mile home, and, and if I got hit by a bus or a plane or a train or a meteor, it just wasn't gonna be his fault. He just took that risk. But then the craziest thing this man did, or should I say failed to do, is he did not invite me to church. Now, come on, everybody gets an invitation to church. I wondered if I was chopped liver. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I'm sort of standing at the threshold like, that's it? What he said to me was, this was a really lively conversation. This is a great night for me. Why don't you just come on over every Tuesday night that works for you? We can just carry on from where we left off. And all of a sudden, I felt something in my heart I hadn't felt around anybody who wasn't in the gay community. I thought, maybe this guy is safe. Maybe it's safe to come back. You see, I wasn't Ken's project. I was Ken's neighbor. I'm not even sure this was friendship evangelism. I think this was maybe friendship. And so I started meeting with Ken and Floyd regularly. Their home became an oasis for me. Um, and I realized that. I would look forward to the days when I could go there and bring my Bible and open it with questions. I started reading the Bible in earnest with pen in hand and notebook in lap. And I simply read the Bible the way I was trained to read a book, okay? I was not raised in an evangelical church. Nobody told me that you're supposed to read it like one verse a day, picking out your verses arbitrarily, you know, just kind of pick it out, there's your verse. I just want you to know if it's hard to read the Bible that way, don't try to read Jane Eyre that way either, okay? It's just, <laughs> it, is, it is an ineffective reading strategy. So, um, you know, I, I quickly learned that this was a library, and I decided I would just sit down and read a book from start to finish, and I would try to read these books in chronological order. And um, that's, so that's what I did. So I just sat down, and I would read these books in, in chronological order, and then I would, I would argue with Ken. I would have my list of questions, and I would argue with him about textual authority and authorship and canonicity, I found the hermeneutics fascinating when he explained that there were three competing narratives, the, the judicial law, the moral law, and the ceremonial law. I thought that was fascinating. And uh, you know, this was a rich, deep book with a lot of texture and a lot of good things to work through. And so it kept me busy 
and engaged and my conversations with Ken and all the people who walked through his house, again, I was like, are you sure these guys aren't gay? I mean, this house is so lively. And, 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 and the people that would come through the door were not always part of the Christian church. They were often neighbors and they would have questions. Sometimes they would ask my questions. And it was this amazing time where I felt loved and I felt safe and I felt known and I, I could get away a little bit from the life I had created and look back on myself. And after, after doing this for a while, I had to at least ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book was different from all the others because it was inspired by a holy God and inherently trustworthy and true and sufficient. I, I knew there was something different about this book. I'm a reader, I'm a reader's reader. I'm much more of a reader than I am a writer. For every book chapter I have ever uh, written, I read about 30 books. I, you know, I could be the chairperson of Overreaders Anonymous, <laughs> and, and that would be great, that would be happy for me. Um, so I was compelled by the depth and the richness, but I fundamentally rejected what I believed was the false simplicity of Christian logic, and that is its doctrine of sin and its belief that the Bible was God-breathed. Now, at this time, what I was trying to do is write a book against the religious right and specifically against what I believed Christians believed about the Bible. So I would simply write down what I believed you believed. And this is one of the things I wrote down. I wrote, Christians believe that because Jesus paid with his life for the sin of all those who repent and believe in him, Christians have Christ's power to flee even from unchosen sin, which the Bible records as treason against God and punishable by death and hell. Now, I did notice that as I read the Bible, that its admonitions of sin were almost always followed by offers of grace, even in the Old Testament. And I thought that was unbelievable. I mean, let me tell you something, this never showed up on a placard at a gay pride march, that the God of the Bible deals differently with you when you deal differently with God. I mean, who knew, right? But I still couldn't figure out how this was working for me. I mean, it didn't, not everything has to be about me, but a lot of it does, and I couldn't figure out how this was going to work for me. I mean, I didn't believe I was hurting anyone. I believed that I was being my authentic self, and I recoiled at the idea that being a lesbian was living in sin. I mean, who in her right mind would choose a God you can't see over a lover that you can? And so, quite frankly, it seemed to me that the gospel was both illogical and very bad news for people like me, people who identified on the LGBTQ spectrum. But I also had to consider something else about this God that I was now trying to understand. If God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then it did seem logical to me that the Bible had the right to actually interrogate my life and my culture and not the other way around. You see, even as a postmodern reader and a postmodern professor, I understood the idea that authority can only depend upon that which was higher than itself. You know, I was a professor, and if it was Friday and your paper was due at three, 
and you just didn't bother getting it to me until Monday at 3, that just wasn't going to go very well for you. And you may be a very nice person, nicer than I am. You may, you know, water your plants more regularly and yada yada. But in that particular arrangement, the arrangement of your paper and its production, I had more authority than you. And I had to think about it. Who has more authority than God? Well, my friends knew I was reading the Bible for a research project. Research is a, you know, it's public domain. And at one of those dinner gatherings that my partner and I had weekly for the gay community, my transgendered friend Jill came into the kitchen, she cornered me, sat me down and said, uh, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you because this Bible reading is really changing you and I'm scared. I think we're losing you. Now, I, you know, that was a tough one, right? And Jill was my friend. And I sat down in the chair next to hers, and she put her large hand over mine, and she said, tell me, you know, tell me the truth of what you're thinking. And I said, okay, Jill, what if it's true? What if there is a real and risen Lord named Jesus? And what if we are all in trouble? And Jill said, I know, I know. I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed the Lord would heal me, but he didn't. If you would like, I will pray for you. Now, I share this with you for two reasons. One is you now know what gay rights activists talk about in their kitchens. Okay, you know, like the mystery has been unveiled, it's been opened wide, you know, look, God has put eternity in the hearts of all men. We all need the answer to these questions. They are urgent for all of us. But there is also something powerful about this encounter with Jill because all of a sudden I had a friend whose own rooting around in this Bible gave me the secret tacit permission to do the same. And that was amazing to me. But I will tell you, there was something about what Jill said to me that just drove me crazy. You see, I didn't have a sinus infection. I didn't have bad knees. I didn't have an earache. I didn't think I needed healing. I didn't think gay was a disease that needed healing. I was a gay rights activist. I felt gay was good. And even this Bible I was reading didn't say, and Rosaria needs healing. It said Rosaria needs to repent of her sin, and I didn't like that either. So really, I just rejected both the idea that I needed healing and the idea that I needed repenting of my sin. And I closed that day and I went on. And the next day when I came home from work, there were two large milk crates of books Jill's books from seminary, and Jill was giving them to me. Now, I am a bookaholic, okay, and I can't get it, just giving me two boxes of books, and I'm just happy for a week. Um, but the other fascinating thing about these books is that my friend, these were my friend's books from seminary. And all in the margins, and for you young people here, I know this is a radical idea, but in these things called books that are made out of paper and glue, <laughs> they don't come with a screen that lights anything up. You don't, like, you don't touch them with your fingers to move things around. But, but 
older people write in them. And as long as it's not a library book, that's totally kosher, okay? Totally kosher, nobody's gonna get upset with you. And if you're reading a friend's book, it's like reading a friend's journal. And I was flipping through this book, reading Jill's life, reading some of her prayers, reading some of her heartache, reading some of her questions. And then I got to Calvin's Institutes, where the Book of Romans was wide open. And in Jill's handwriting, in big block, Jill had this gorgeous cursive, but all of a sudden in big block um, print letters, it said this, watch out, watch Romans 1. And I thought, okay, I, uh, let me see what Jill's talking about. Because even though I had read the Bible many times through, there are certain sections of this Bible I had skipped a lot. And Romans 1 was one of those. So if you have your Bibles, I'm in Romans 1, verses 21 to 28, 27. It's so good, I hear flipping of paper. Look at that. I hear flipping of paper. I don't see the, the holy glow. <laughs> oh, I love you. <laughs> oh, see, somebody holds up the holy glow out there. All right, there's one in every crowd. Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. And I'll tell you what, right now, that's the scariest line in the Bible for me, if you want to know. God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, these verses were haunting to me. They were haunting because of what they said. They were haunting because of that line, gave them up, repeated, the word exchanged, repeated. They were haunting because my friend said, watch out but they were also haunting because of the way that they are a perfect, what's called a literary echo to Genesis 3, where Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority made perfect sense to me. In literary studies, we call these literary frames, and these two literary frames, one in Genesis and one in Romans, stood out as the table of contents of what ails the world. And I thought it was fascinating that Romans 1 does not end by 
highlighting homosexuality as sexual orientation. And I'm a 19th century scholar, so I actually knew when that was invented. The category of sexual orientation is not, it's not part of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You might think it is. You might think it is because of what you've been reading today, but that's just not true. The category is about 150 years old. It was invented by Freud. It had a very politically efficacious uh, beginning. And even those of us in the gay community at this point, before it was advantageous to use this as a marketing ploy, we even thought that it was a bit of a category mistake. So that's a long story. But I thought, well, this is interesting. There's nothing here about sexual orientation, nothing about a discrete and separate category of personhood that almost everybody seems to believe that it is today. Instead, this passage doesn't in any way end with homosexuality. Homosexuality is the launch pad. Homosexuality is the, is the, is the thing that crescendos into something else. Homosexuality morphs into other sins. Quote, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Well, this last line really grabbed me by the throat. It explains something about the anger in the gay community, the fervor in the gay community, the unrelentless drive for political change in the gay community. It diagnosed something deep in my heart. It told me that if I cannot receive a blessing from God, I will demand it from men. Now, as the faculty advisor to many LGBTQ rights groups on campus, this really got my attention. But I also took note of the theological diagnosis. Homosexuality, at least in the Bible, is presented as one step in the journey away from God's blessing and protection. It's not a category of personhood. It's, it's something else. And I had to get to the bottom of what that is. I had to take note of what the Bible did not say about homosexuality because I was working with a set of paradigms that wasn't going to make sense here. The Bible does not recognize homosexuality as a noun, as a category of personhood. The world has accepted this 19th century category invention of sexual orientation as an accurate category of personhood and identity, but that's actually not how the Bible understands homosexuality. Homosexuality, from God's point of view, is Adam's thumbprint on some of us. It's a identity-rooted, ethical outworking of original sin. And therefore, it seems solidly biblical to say that some of us are born this way. Because truth be told, we're all born in Adam. Each and every person here in the world is born with an inordinate, unchosen desire for something that God hates. We are all born distorted by original sin, one way or another. 
but this passage was telling me that by failing to rigorously relinquish my identity to God's story and failing to understand how the fall rendered even my deepest, most primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue, I had added to my ledger of original sin by creating for myself a category of personhood that God did not. God has one category of personhood. We are male and female image bearers of a holy God with a soul that will last forever somewhere. Now these were hard things. These were very hard things. And I had a friend named Ken Smith and another friend named Floyd Smith. And I shared with them these hard things. And they were very gentle with me. And they didn't exploit me or manipulate me or pressure me. They listened to me, they prayed, and they helped me understand myself. They helped me use the Bible as a mirror as well as something else. But I was really stuck on this sexual orientation thing. Um, there simply is no biblical category of personhood subsumed under the 19th century category invention of sexual orientation. I, I just couldn't get past this. Instead, the Bible declares that we are all made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27, and that we have a sin orientation in Adam, Genesis 3.15, and a soul orientation in eternity, Matthew 10, 28, Romans 6, 23, and once born again in Christ, a new citizenship, one that comes in exchange for the life you loved, not in addition to it, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And in spite of believing, living, and teaching the idea that gender and sexuality were social constructs. That's part of the catechism of the gay rights movement. Gender and sexuality are social constructs. I had taught that to so many people, I was blue in the face with it. So in spite of teaching it, the Bible made clear to me that God has set ethical and moral responsibilities, blessings, and constraints for simply being born male and female and that I'm accountable to these responsibilities, whether they feel good to me or not. Well, I had taught, studied, read, and lived a totally different understanding of sexuality, and I wondered if maybe I'm fulfilling that little stickum on my desk. I want to be wrong on an important point rather than right on a trivial one. And it wasn't a happy thought, by the way, that I was wrong. I had, uh, you know, a research career. I had things resting on this. Well, threatened by what this book was doing to me, I did the only responsible thing. I decided I was going to throw the Bible away. I was going to not do this crazy research assignment. And I was going to do everything I could to just break up with Ken and Floyd. You know, just kind of disappear from their world but I couldn't shake them. They weren't stalkers, but they were close. <laughs> I couldn't shake them. Ken said, yeah, great, stop reading, stop doing the research. Let's just get on with the big life questions. I said, Ken, you don't know what you're asking of me. He said, I, I probably don't, but I really think 
I think you need to do it. He said, you know, if you don't, and 10 years from now, are you going to be any happier? I mean, are you going to feel good about the fact that you didn't actually pursue this question to its end point? He said, that's not in you. you you're pursuing this. It's okay. Let's just stop the research. I want you to keep reading the Bible. I want you to meet with me and Floyd. I want you in my life. I want you as my friend. I want to see what God's going to do with all of this. And only because we were friends did I keep reading the Bible. Among other things, I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that the biblical authors were moved by the Holy Spirit to record the Word of God, and that the Bible is completely true and without error and sufficient. I mean, come on, people, how could a smart cookie like me believe such things? I, I was a postmodernist. I didn't even believe in truth. I, I mean, you know, I just didn't. I thought, well, this is crazy. I believe that the reader constructed the text, that a text is only paper and glue until a reader's interpretation made it come alive. I had told thousands of students that over and over and over again, and I thought, well, how dare this one book lay claim to a birthright and a progeny that is totally different from every other book on the planet? I mean, come on, Ken, do you understand what you're asking me to believe about this one book? He said, yep, I sure do, keep reading it. <laughs> so after years and years of this, hundreds of meals at the, at the Smith home, you know, thousands of late night conversations, the most annoying neighbor you could ever imagine, Something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I, and it overflowed into my world. And I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, two plus years after I first started reading the Bible for my research and meeting with Ken Smith, whom I thought would be my first unpaid research assistant and all that stuff, I left the home I shared with my lesbian partner and an hour later, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I felt like such a freak sitting there in church. And I just kept thinking about last year's Gay Pride March. You know, wide as it was with people like me, people who made me feel safe and loved, people I valued as a family and who valued me. And I had this terrible feeling that when I crossed the threshold of the doors of that church, I was betraying everybody I loved. I was becoming a traitor. Uh, and that was actually true, by the way. That turned out to be true. I did both of those things. I became a traitor and I betrayed everyone I loved. And it really hurt them a lot. But I did keep going back to church to hear more sermons. Um, I had actually made friendships with people in the church at this time, and I was perplexed, really perplexed, by the way they would reference the Bible in the details of their days. 
I should tell you just in general, English professors by training love textual cross-referencing. I mean, if you can quote from an ancient book without looking at it, like, wow, you know, that, that's really exciting. Uh, but but it, it, was, it was a little bit terrifying to me. I mean, cross-referencing the Bible with your life actually puts you inside God's story, inside God's ontology. That's what these crazy, nutty people were doing. And I really thought, are, are you crazy? Is this safe? Is this deadly? I knew it was deadly for me. I mean, I don't know why people think the death penalty is so hard to understand in scripture. I knew not to try that one at home. That would have been crazy. But I was noticing something else about my Christian friends. They were actually getting things out of the Bible that I wasn't. They were understanding how the Bible fit together as a whole. And even more than that, I saw them at faculty meetings, at university meetings. I watched the way they worked. And two things I noticed about these people that I didn't understand. One is my life all of a sudden was kinder with them in it. It was gentler. I had people who helped me with things, who cared about my well-being, who advocated for me, not as a lesbian, but as a person, and, and was there in a crisis. I also noticed that when things got really testy at faculty meetings, they kept their cool. They didn't gossip. They didn't curse. They didn't malign their colleagues, even when they were really pressed with their back against the wall. And I wondered, why couldn't I see what they do? And why can't I do what they do? Well, Ken at this point was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew is a very literary gospel. It's got these wild metaphors you know, seeds choked by the world, and some nameless kids, bread and fish, feeding 5,000. Now, if I were the editor, that nameless kid would have a name. He's really important. Important characters get names in books. So I was getting all waylaid about these kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I did find Jesus's question to impetuous Peter, oh, I love Peter, you know, just you gotta love Peter. But Jesus' question in Matthew 15 was so impactful. Do you still lack understanding? And I remember thinking, that's my question. And then one Lord's Day, Pastor Ken was preaching on that passage, and he just stopped there. And he turned his steel blue eyes on us, and he held us in the longest pause a really long pause, the kind of long pause that made me wonder what the frozen chosen does when the old man behind the pulpit has a heart attack. And like, you know, is there like a revival meeting? Is there a prayer meeting? Does anybody call 911? But no, he was just pausing and thinking. And then he said, congregation, did Christ ever say that to you? Do you still lack understanding? It is your responsibility to not lack understanding. And this startled me. This was my question. I swear he was staring at me when he said it. He said he wasn't, but you know what I mean. You know how these things go. 
this question was for me. Why couldn't I see what I did? Do I still lack understanding? And for a split second before I could just shove all those feelings down and not try to really think about it, I had this terrifying thought. Who is talking to me? That old man I thought was going to have a heart attack or the God-man behind the creation of the world and the redemption of his people. You see, there's something about the hermeneutic of preaching that is totally disarming to me. And the image that crashed like waves in a raging sea of me and everyone I loved, suffering in hell, vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. Not only because we called ourselves gay, but also because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous. We rejected the Bible's interpretive authority over our sexuality, our sexual identity, or anything else about us. And I realized at that moment that if the Bible is really true, I was dead. And people of God, if the Bible is not true, or if it's only half true, or if it's only true in the red letters, or if it's only true in the ways that the 19th century corresponds to my blah, 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 neo-orthodox, blah, 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 then you are just simply staring at the biggest fool on earth. You could pack it in now and leave. But God's promises rolled in like another round of waves into my world. Um, one Lord's Day, Ken was preaching on John 7, 17, and in the New King James, it reads like this, if anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker, and I was paid to read books and write about them and tell other people what to think about them. And I just presumed that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience. That just seemed logical to me, not the other way around. And I realized that I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. And I said that to Ken Smith at one of our many meetings, and he said, oh, so you want to be the judge and not the one being judged. And I thought, wow, that's true. Yeah, I do. I mean, perhaps I thought like Eve in the garden, I actually wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. All of a sudden, I thought about original sin, and I thought, well, hadn't I already done it? I mean, if my consciousness fell in Adam's sin, as the Bible purports, it's no wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. I love thinking games. I love strategy ga games. The harder, the better. But this was not a game of thinking and of matching of wits. This was a different question. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will just this once? You see, the stakes are so very high because they always are. But this verse promised understanding after obedience. And I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? So I did something that I hadn't done in all the time I had been exploring my Christian faith and all my reading and all my note-taking and all my debating and all my meeting with people and even all my taking notes at sermons and going to Ken's house and, and arguing. 
I actually decided I was going to get on my knees and pray. And so I, I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. I don't know why I prayed that except for I heard other people doing it, and so I thought, that, why don't I tuck that one in? That seems like a safe one. I prayed that I would be a vessel of Jesus, and then I had this, this very frightening thought. And this frightening thought was this, I'm not just a vessel, I'm actually a woman, and I don't know what that means. And I've never felt like a very competent woman. I'm, I'm an INTJ, you know, that's like 0.5% of all women are an INTJ. I've been told I have a male brain since I remember anybody talking to me about my brain. Um, my, my best qualities are, you know, strength and courage and boldness and, you know, gentleness and kindness are things I really have to work on. And I thought, I don't know what it means to be a woman, but maybe God does. And all of a sudden, I had this growing but very terrified desire to make sense of myself as a woman defined and covered by God. And so I prayed that God would make me a godly woman. And then I laughed out loud in the ridiculousness of that prayer. And my housemates, you know, knocking on the door, are you okay in there? You know, you're talking to yourself, you're laughing to yourself. <sighs> so I, it was a terrifying night. And quite frankly, I left that night of prayer pondering one simple question. It was totally a bust. I left at that point. I'm like, this prayer thing is too wacky. I've got to stop. It, it goes too deep. But I thought one simple question, could original sin be for real? And could it actually distort me like this? I mean, is my sexual desire for women a reflection of the real me? That's what I thought. Or is it a distortion of the real me through original sin? Is being a lesbian my authentic self? Or is it Adam's thumbprint on my life? Is lesbian my identity? Or am I living a case of mistaken identity? Who am I? Philosophers distinguish between the real, the lived and the felt, and the true, the deeper realities of life, the ontological, the past and future purposes. And I wondered if being a lesbian, while real, was perhaps not true. I mean, if Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, couldn't he make my true identity prevail? I mean, who would God have me to be? I, felt, I still felt like a lesbian in my body and my heart. That is, I felt my flesh's identity. But what is a Christian identity? The Bible makes clear that fallen flesh and a redeemed identity and mind have a very troubled relationship this side of eternity. Galatians 5.17 calls it a war. For many people in the Bible, their redeemed identity and calling comes after a long struggle with God, with wilderness wanderings, with dreams and hopes and plans dashed and destroyed. Why did I think I was going to be any different? What will become of me if Jesus takes over? I wondered. You know, I knew that the cross is ruthless. It's ruthless. It's an instrument of execution. It makes no ally with the sin it crushes. 
in the death and resurrection of the Lord. But I feared something. What if I commit my life to Christ and my lesbian feelings never disappear? Does this mean that God does not love me or hear me or care? Is the gospel bad news for people like me, people who identify on the LGBTQ continuum? Who is this Jesus? Did I know him? Did I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. We were in church, and we were singing from Psalm 119. And when the line, line 56, this has become mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I gasped in horror because I had actually just sung condemnation unto myself, and for the first time in my life, I felt the Holy Spirit's convicting rebuke. I wanted to do a happy dance. That was amazing. It was clear as day. This Bible was not mine. Oh, I had read it at this point seven times through. But I had also scorned it and cursed it and despised it and taught thousands of college students to do the same. Oh, I had read it. But this time, when I sang those words, this has become mine, I actually saw for myself it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. And when I said, this has become mine, I was actually testifying two things. That the line of communication that God has ordained for his people required all of the heartache and all of the stress and all of the struggle and, you know, hundreds of meals at the Smith home and all of those night sessions with the Bible opened. But also that I really, truly wanted to hear what God had to say to me. And I wanted God to hear my prayers. And I realized that at that moment that this Bible, this whole Bible, was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed, and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate for peace and social justice, I thought I was on the side of kindness, integrity, care, compassion. It was a crushing revelation to discover it. It was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my husband, my friend, that Jesus. Well, of course, there's only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You, you must fall on your face and repent of your sin. And I started by repenting of my pride, the pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith and life and sexual autonomy, the pride that led me to believe that I was entitled to live separately from God, the pride that led me to believe that self-worth was self-invented. Repentance is the daily posture of the Christian and the threshold to a holy God. I didn't feel shame. Oh, 
because I realized that repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian conscience because it only proves the obvious that God was right all along. Well, conversion did not immediately change my sexual desires for women. You see, I was actually never converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. But converted I was, and therefore I could not make false peace with my sin. I had to break up with my girlfriend. And then I had to do something even harder. I had to break up with all women. I had to break up with ever looking at a woman again to ask her to fulfill something in me that God didn't love. And that meant a wide range of things, not just sexual. It also meant not ever being able to be so codependently involved with another woman that I could be her functional savior. Um, it meant a lot of things. Now, in today's world, when I say that, when I say I had to break up with all women, um, that's called harshness. There's a movement called gay Christianity that would like you to believe and would like me to believe that being a lesbian actually makes me a better friend to women and yada yada, and that what I just said to, that I had to do was called spiritual abuse. And that's just a bunch of nonsense. Because I had to do that. In God's world, that's called wisdom. It's simply called wisdom. And why is it wisdom? Because your real nature in Christ is not your sin nature. They are in competition with each other for your heart and your soul. Galatians 5.17 records the war. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So when you hear that you don't understand, this can't be sin, it feels good. You know, this is where Christians scratch their head. Because quite frankly, if your sin doesn't feel good to your flesh, you're doing it wrong. You know, you need like a coach or something. You need to get, you understand it so you can repent of it, of course. But you know what I'm saying. That's a false argument. The gospel comes in exchange for the life you love, not in addition to it. And gospel life is cross-bearing life. And sin, even unchosen sin, produces suffering for everybody. And in this way, same-sex attraction for many believers is Adam's thumbprint. All right? It's no different than being born with uh, a, a an anger problem and a self-control problem. It's the same thing. We are all born under Adam. And if you are listening today and you're fighting against same-sex attraction and you're battling this sin in God's way, forsaking the false identity of gay or lesbian or trans or queer or anything else on the alphabet soup chain that we don't even know what they mean anymore, forsaking that for the true identity of image bearer of a holy God, forsaking through grace any sexual identity or sexual practice that God calls sin, 
embracing chastity and singleness and fidelity in biblical marriage, and what my dear friend Christopher Yuan calls holy sexuality, then you, struggle in all, are what we call a hero of the faith. And as you stand in the risen Christ alone in this battle, you should not be shunned or despised or demeaned, but rather embraced as a decorated brother and sister in Christ, a decorated soldier standing in robes of righteousness, hearing your father's words, beloved son, beloved daughter, and you, I am well pleased. Now, for me, actually, something else did happen after I crossed the threshold into faith. My prayer to be a godly woman morphed into another one. This is a long story, so I'm not going to keep you for another like 10 hours and tell you about it, but it's, it's, I have written a few books, so it's in there, and I can talk about it in the Q&A, but I, I realized I desired to be a godly wife, to help a godly man in areas of his life to work behind the scenes, to develop those other qualities that I really struggle with, and I still struggle with, like kindness and gentleness and all of that. Now, this is where I have to say that biblical marriage is a wonderful gift from God, but it is not a gospel requirement. And I know that there is a vital and powerful role for singles in the church, and that singleness in Christ is neither selfishness nor secondhand gospel citizenship. Singles in our churches do not need to be fixed or fixed up, right? But nevertheless, I felt God, if God willed, to ask God to make me a godly wife, to work in me such that I could be a helper in all aspects to a godly man. Things got a lot messier, if you can imagine. But a few years later, I met my husband, Kent Butterfield, and we have been joyfully married for 18 years, walking with the Lord together. And my role as Kent's helper and the mother of my children, and now grandchildren, is my daily witness that we serve a God who lives, hears our prayers, loves his people, liberates captives, and equips us to live fully in Christ as the strongholds of sin are broken down through the grace of Christ's blood. So the gospel is always costly, and the crosses that the Lord meets out are not democratic. You know, the Christian life is not fair. It will not ever be fair. Fairness is not this side of eternity. Some people will get ten crosses, some will get one. And our challenge as a body of believers is to make sure for the people who have ten crosses, we're not leaning on those crosses. Instead, we're helping to lift them up. Because each cross is actually tailor-made to prepare us for eternity, where we will actually judge the angels someday and stand in robes of righteousness. Not one tear will be wasted and not one hardship will be, will be for naught. Now, sometimes when I share my testimony, you know, first of all, I did not share my testimony for years. In fact, I, it had been just 10 years easily. And then when I first started sharing my testimony, I remember somebody saying, will you share your testimony? And I said, you know, no way, I'm having a hard enough time living it. 
So this is not something that uh, you know, I, I would do if this were raw or new. But I will tell you that when I share my testimony and I share what goes on, what went on, uh, it's, it's perplexing to people. And so I think we have to ask, well, what's changed between 1998 and 2019? Um, you know, the first is that when Ken Smith and I first started gathering for meals and hospitality, he told me up front that he accepted me as a lesbian, but he didn't approve of me. Now, that made perfect sense to me, but today that would be recorded as hate speech. And, and I know that. I know that because I have a friend who identifies as a lesbian who called me up about oh, a couple of years ago now and said, Rosaria, we cannot be friends anymore. You do not approve of me. I am a lesbian. And I had to say, wow, Ruth, whatever made you think I approved of you? I mean, seriously, we were really good friends. I know you too well to approve of you. And likewise, you know me too well to approve of me. So here, let me just say something. We never approved of each other, but we loved each other. And she laughed. She said, you know, I never approved of you. I mean, those chicken nuggets you, feed, you fed our children, they had this peanut oil that was made with blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you and Kent, you know, believed in spanking your children. And those Pixar films, they had violent images of, of, of women in domestic garb. I mean, you're right. I never approved of you. And I said, okay, there, can we just agree then that we don't approve of each other and we can still, okay, that's fine. You know, I just think it helps to offer some sense into this. We, we don't approve of each other in general. And if love and approval go together, then no parent has ever loved a child, ever. <laughs> but especially in the zero to three years, you know. When I walked through the doors of the church, I knew that the church believes that homosexuality, both as a sexual practice and an identity, was a sin. Okay, I knew that. But I also knew that these were smart, intelligent, kind people. And I knew that because they had me in their home. They were regularly in my life. They wouldn't let go of me. They weren't stalkers, but they were close people. They were close. Um, Today, many churches regard homosexuality as primarily a category of personhood, and people who experience homosexual desires as a separate kind of person, not like the rest of the church, but somehow radically different. And I think that that has just made it impossible on both sides of this fence. You know, I think, I think that we need to remember that the gay rights movement wants dignity. And there is nothing that will give you dignity apart from the gospel. So we can agree on the things we can agree on, but this idea that you've got a separate group of people is just, it's not accurate at all. And you will never arrive, if you are struggling with same-sex attraction and you're calling yourself a gay Christian, stop. Just stop. You are never going to get where you need to go with that. Right? You're going to get into a boatload of trouble with that but you're never gonna to get to where you need to go with that because your identity has to be forged in your union with Christ. You don't get to make an identity out of anything that you're not going to keep in the New Jerusalem. And that's true for other things too, right? If you're making an identity out of something that isn't homosexuality, but so, the gay rights movement, including the gay Christian movement, has sold the world a pack of lies. It's a pack of lies. Um, but Jesus hasn't. 
And the old ways are still the right ways. There are a lot of things you can't say in public anymore. And I'll talk more to, in tomorrow's sessions about how you can apply this idea of radical hospitality if you so choose. But I know that I'm here because God made Ken Smith come and get me and drag me by the ankles and throw me over his shoulder and, and you know, he just, he wouldn't let go. And I also know that all of you have somebody on your hearts and on your prayers. Somebody you love, somebody who feels very lost to you right now. And I just want you to know that I know that's a prayed for son. That's a prayed for daughter. That's a prayed for grandchild. That's a prayed for neighbor. And I don't care how much Satan wants to sucker punch you into thinking that's really a different person. No way. You know better. And so we need to uphold each other in prayer and in confidence, knowing that that we're not done yet. We're in the messy middle of this conversation. And I'm going to pray that the church is going to lead us out. So will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we have talked about hard and heavy things. And I pray, Lord, that you would be in the hearts and the lives of each person here and also be in the hearts and the lives of all of the people that, are, that they're worried about, that they pray about. I pray as we move to this time of question and answers that, that you would bless us to, um, to give you the glory as we marvel at, at the way that you use even us in this broken world. And God, we know that Satan has a stronghold right now in the gay community. We are grieved that Christians are falling for it, Lord. I pray that you would wake us up and I pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit in revival. And I pray, Lord, that you would reunite families that have been, um, that have been harmed by, um, by this particular sin. And so we love, you, Lord, we love you, Lord, and we leave this with you, and we pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. This has been a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historic creeds and confessions and who proclaim biblical doctrine in today's church. The Alliance hosts conferences, produces radio and internet broadcasts, and publishes online and in print. We continue only with your support. To give a financial gift or learn more, call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org.